Well, friends, uh, our scripture today comes to us from Psalm 1 and then actually Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. Listen now for the word of the Lord. The happy person doesn't follow wicked advice, doesn't stand in the way of offenders, and doesn't sit with scoffers. Instead of doing these things, the happy person loves the Lord's teaching and murmurs God's instructions day and night. They are like a tree transplanted to be by streams of water, which bears fruit at just the right time and whose leaves don't wither and die. Whatever they do succeeds. That's not true for the wicked. They're like dust that the wind blows away. And that's why the wicked will have no standing in the courts of justice, neither will offenders in the presence of the righteous. The Lord embraces the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is destroyed. And then from Jeremiah 17. Cursed are those who trust in mere humans, who depend on human strength and turn their hearts from the Lord. They will be like a desert shrub that doesn't know how relief comes. They will live in the parched places of the wilderness, in a barren land where no one survives. Happy are those who trust in the Lord, who rely on the Lord. They will be like trees planted by streams, whose roots reach down to the deep waters. They won't fear drought when it comes, their leaves will remain green. They won't be stressed in the time of drought or fail to bear fruit. The most cunning heart, it's beyond help. Who can figure it out? I, the Lord, probe the heart and discern hidden motives to give everyone what they deserve, the consequences of their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for your wisdom. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and that whatever words we would hear would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you raise your hand if you've ever been exhausted? Yeah, I hope I'm seeing everyone's hand. <laughs> yeah, we, we get exhausted sometimes, we get tired. A lot of us might be exhausted right now because we're going through a pandemic and there's a lot of change happening. Some of us might be exhausted because we moved across the country or we started a new business or um, we've got life transitions. We're putting kids in different schools or we're shuffling our friends and family around places. We get exhausted during seasons, during moments, during years of our life. The most exhausted that I have ever, ever been was after I ran my first marathon. And um, I, so I, I, had tra I had trained for the marathon. I'd done everything I needed to do. I followed this regime. I actually ran cross country in high school and college, so I, I had a good base. I was, I was ready to do this marathon. And I went out with this goal. My goal was to break four hours. That was my soft goal. My, my tough goal was like, can I break 345? And if I did that, I 
you know, I'm vain, so I thought I would feel better about myself or something. So I set this goal. And I went out, and I did the Philadelphia Marathon. Conditions were great. It was a, it was a cool, crisp fall morning. There's really no wind. I was feeling good. So I went out, and I did it. I did all 26.2 miles. And I came across, I think it was like 343 or something. But when I came across the finish line, I was done. <laughs> like there, there were no more steps to be taken out of my body. If you've ever um, seen the, uh, the videos of Ironman uh, contenders who finish their races, have you seen these? Where they're literally like stumbling across the line because they've, they've been exercising for like 16 hours or something. And they can't move. That's how I felt after just three hours. And I, I was done and I actually collapsed in the line and the, uh, the medical attendants had to pick me up and kind of take me through and then they, they set me off to the side and they put one of those cool space blankets around me, started to warm me up, gave me some water and started asking me a bunch of questions about, you know, what's my name, what do I do, blah, 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 just making sure I'm alive. The woman that was attending to me then asked me a series of questions after I'd kind of come to, and she said, how long have you been training for this? And I, I said, I, I've been training for a while, and I, I told her I, I, had, I had a good base, I was, I was doing great. She's like, how often did you stop for water? And I was like, oh, I'll have to think about that. And I, and I actually hadn't stopped for water, if you can believe that. I was so focused on meeting my goal, I just ran straight through. Well, it's kind of true, actually. I, I did receive a cup at one point in the race. It was in front of this bar, and I thought they were handing out water, but it was actually one of their beers that they were featuring. So I grabbed a beer, you know, just a little cup of it, and threw it back and then spit it out because I was like, why, why would they do that? But that was the only liquid or food I had had during the entire race. So my entire body had seized up. I was dehydrated. Um, and, and the woman looked at me. She said, look, the ne next time you do this, you need to make a habit out of stopping every now and then. Drink a cup of water, stretch out a little bit, limber up, and then continue. And she, she asked me, why, why didn't you do that this time? I was like, I, well, I wanted to meet my goal. She was like, I bet you would have run faster had you just paused for a second. Um, it's a good word. We've all been exhausted. We've all felt that, whether it's during a marathon, whether it's during a shorter race, whether it's during a season of life where we feel like we just can't keep up with everything. We felt that deep exhaustion. And I guess my question is, as Christians, what do we do? What do we do when we feel that exhaustion? What do we do when we're tapped out? What do we do when, as Jeremiah says, we feel cursed almost and we're like a shrub in the middle of a desert, dried up with withering leaves, feeling like we're going to die? What do we do? There's this great story I heard about these monks that were praying, and you, you may have heard something like this before, but the way I heard it was that there were these monks that were circling up to pray one day, and this cat, this pesky cat came by and started rubbing up against their legs like cats do and being all cute and cuddly and mewing and meowing while they're trying to say these very important words to God, you know? And so one of the monks decided that it, he was going to take that cat and he was going to tie it to a tree. 
So he did. He took the cat and he dragged it over the tree and he tied it. And then once they were done praying, he went back and he, he untied it. And the next day they came back for prayers and there was that pesky cat again, being cute, rubbing up against their legs. And so the brother took the cat again and tied it to the tree. And this kept happening over and over and over throughout the years that Finally, the brothers were circled up one day, and it was, it was none of the brothers that were originally there in the circle, and it wasn't even the same cat, but someone told one of the brothers, hey, can you, take, can you go find a cat and tie it to the tree before we do our prayers? And the brother asked, well, why, do, why are we tying cats to trees before we pray? And everyone looked around and said, I, I don't know, it's just it's what we've always done. I got to hear uh, Billy Collins do a reading one time when I was in seminary. Does anyone know who Billy Collins is, the poet? I think he was poet laureate of the United States at one point. Um, I mean, he's a poet, so he's poet famous, I guess. Um, but he was asked a series of questions afterward, and the, the one question that really stood out to me was this. Someone from the crowd raised their hand and said, how do I become a poet? Which is a great question to ask. And Billy Collins paused for a really long time. And then he looked up with this like wry smile and he said, well, the first thing you need to do is nothing. The first thing you need to do is nothing. And the person that was interviewing him kind of pushed back and said, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean do nothing? He's like, well, the poet's job is to pay attention to things. The poet's job is to notice things that maybe others don't notice, to tap into the rhythms of life that maybe we're not recognizing so easily. And I think the only way you can really achieve that is by doing nothing. And so he recommended that you get a chair that's by a window and you sit in that chair and you just stare out it for about an hour every day if you want to write poetry. And I love, I love that image. I love that. I do a little bit of creative writing myself actually and um, I, I've fallen in love with reading about writers' routines and how they've, especially prolific writers that are, that are really, really great, how have they kept up this volume of work over the course of a career? Where do they find the inspiration? Where do they find the time? How do, how do they do this, you know? And one of my favorite stories actually comes from Maya Angelou, who um, has this great, great routine that, that she, she talks about. She would, um, said she would wake up about 6 a.m., and she would make coffee, she would make breakfast, she would have that, and by seven, she was taking off, and she said she could never write in her home because writing was a messy business, and her home was too neat and nice for that messy business, so she preferred a hotel, and she said the more anonymous and more discreet, the better. So she would keep a room at a hotel where she would go and she would write. And she said in the hotel, she only had a few things. There was a desk, there was a chair, there was obviously a bed. Sometimes there would be a sink, sometimes there wouldn't be. And she would also keep a Bible, a dictionary, a deck of cards, and a big bottle of sherry, she said. And she went there every single day. And she wrote. And her life's work is well, it's speaking for itself now. In our text for today, we're kind of continuing this series on what does it mean to be a Christian? Thoughts, my thoughts on being a Christian. And again, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not able to get to everything I want to. And uh, halfway through this week, I was thinking, I probably bit off more than I could chew. Um, but I want to continue to ask this question and ask it around 
ritual. Ritual for the Christians. In our text for today, they're kind of talking to us a little bit about rituals. You know, the psalm is really about these two ways that we can choose in life. And this is an oversimplification, so please, please hear me when I say that. This is, I think, an intentional oversimplification on the author's part. There are two paths that you can take in life, right? Morally speaking, you can take the path of evil, of death, of destruction, of this shrub that's lost in the desert, or you can take this other path, the path of life, the way of God, the way of righteousness, where you're tapped into deep waters and rooted in the great mystery of God. And we know this intuitively, I think, I hope, that in a lot of ways we are kind of always making these decisions between these two things, whether we're conscious of it or not. We're always choosing one path or another. I had a hard time with that Jeremiah passage. Did anyone else kind of balk at the cursed language? Cursed are you? Anyone else have trouble with that? That cursed language is tough, but it kind of made sense when I was thinking about running that marathon. I was cursed because I wouldn't stop, (laughs) because I didn't take a break. And when I finished, I was cursed like one of those shrubs that were dried up in the desert. I was hurting. I was empty. And what the psalmist wants us to say is, wants us to do, really, is to be like the tree that's planted by streams of water, right? And this is a very simple message. Plant yourself by streams of water. Transplant yourself is actually the language. Put yourself there constantly and consistently, day after day. Find yourself by the water of life that fills you up. And for Christians, I think this can look different and look so, it's so diverse. I mean, I asked you all what you do for fun, and there were so many answers. Some people like to do math. Some people like to take naps. Some of us like to sit in a quiet office and read our Bible. I do that. Some of us like to get together with friends. Some of us have different practices. Some of us like to sail. Some of us like to be on open water. Some of us like just be alone. Whatever rituals you have, whatever things you have that you like to do, I think what the psalmist is encouraging us to do is to plant ourselves beside those things, to find ourselves rooted in those rituals that constantly give us life. And for the psalmist, they say, you know, this is the way of God. It's the path of God. But I think we can expand that a little bit. I think we can broaden it. I think we can make it a little bit more inclusive to say, whatever the source of life is for you, whatever it is that keeps you going, tap into that. And I'd be willing to call that God. If it fills you up, if it sends you out. And whatever it is that kind of drains you, whatever it is that kind of takes your life out of you, whatever it is that's hurting you and causing you angst or pain, we'll try to avoid that. Don't uproot and plant beside those things that are polluting your soul or not giving you life. And those things, by the way, too, the things that pollute us, they can look different across our lives. 
Now, that's not to say that God only wants us to do everything that's easy and fun and makes us happy and it's all rainbows and roses and sunshine. But it is to say we have to be intentional with the way we live our lives. We have to monitor our energy. We have to monitor what we can take on. We have to monitor how we're doing and take assessment of our lives. We have to make sure that we're planted by the right streams and we're getting the nourishment that we need. And I think that happens through ritual. In the church, you know, we have, we have rituals. We have a lot of rituals. We come to Sunday morning service, most of us, a lot of Sundays, right? But we always know there's going to be a church that's worshiping, and so we know we can find a sanctuary and we can go worship God. This is a ritual in the church. Another ritual, another sacrament, actually, is um, communion, which we're going to do a little bit later. And this sacrament of communion, this ritual that we have of coming, some, some Christians do it every single week. Some Christians do it once a year. That's how I grew up. We did it once a year because it was very, very special. Presbyterians, we do it nice and orderly, and we do it once a month. Some, some Presbyterians, others do it differently. But this ritual of gathering around this table, we say in the church, is a way of spiritually nourishing ourselves, of making sure that we're tending to our souls by gathering around the table and symbolically taking in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and sharing that with our brothers and sisters. And if you think about it, you know, the church has been doing this for how many hundreds of years? Gathering around the table, taking the bread, taking the juice, and in some ways, it has sustained the church this long. And we're here still doing it. That ritual, that practice brought us together. It brought you together. If it brought you in this church, you may have met some of your lifelong friends here. And I'm not saying it's because of communion, but I'm saying it has something to do with this ritual of gathering around the table. The ritual of baptism is another that I think has sustained us over time. Whether we gather to see a full-grown human be baptized or whether we gather to see an infant marked as a child of God, it gathers us together, and it reminds us that God is doing this great work inside of our hearts, and hopefully that nourishes us and sends us out into the world to continue to do the work of God. You know, those two rituals we consider sacraments in the Presbyterian church, and the word sacrament uh, really means mystery. Mystery. And so these mysteries that we're tapped into of gathering around a table and gathering around water somehow, some way, connect us to God and nourish our souls so that we can continue this journey together. This is really what I think Maya Angelou was getting at when she said she couldn't work at home, she had to have a, a separate place, that she had found something about the hotel and the atmosphere and a deck of cards and a dictionary and a Bible and a bottle of sherry. She had found something about all of that life-giving, inspiring, and it allowed her to sit down at the desk and do the work that she needed to do day in and day out. It's the same, the story I told of Toni Morrison last week, where she would wake up before the sun rose, so she could watch the light come, and then that light was kind of her signal, she said, to go and do the work. They're tapped into this great mystery in the world, and it's filling them up, and giving them life, and sustaining them. 
It's the same thing that Billy Collins is talking about, sitting in front of a window and doing nothing. We all have those rituals, I think, but how much are we prioritizing them? Or do we have those rituals? You know, I think the story of the three, the, the monks that were circling up to pray kind of teaches us that we need to make sure that whatever we're doing, let, let's make sure we know about it. Let's make sure we know why we do it. Let's make sure we know how it feeds us. Let's make sure it's intentional, it's purposeful. Sometimes I think we've been given these life-giving rituals that aren't so life-giving anymore. We're kind of just going through the motions. So we've got to make sure that we're attentive to those. As Christians, I think this should be a question that's on your mind all the time. How am I connecting to God? And you make that as broad as you want. You don't have to sit alone and read your Bible. You don't have to sit and be on your knees praying to God a certain prayer at certain times of the day, though you can do that. But how are you connected to God? Do you feel that connection to God when you're with friends? Do you feel that connection to God when you're alone in an empty sanctuary? Do you feel that connection to God when you're running, when you're sailing, when you are doing math problems? What connects you to this great mystery, this great source of life? And are you making a habit of connecting to that? We all know the world needs healthier people, right? We all know the world needs healthier people. We need lights in this world. I think oftentimes we can jump to doing the work for others and serving others, and that, that's great. That we need to do that. But as Christians, we also prioritize self-care and soul care, and we make sure we're tapping into what God has to offer us. So this morning, my question for us is, What streams are you planted by? The ones where the water is giving you life or the ones that are dry and polluting your soul? Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you so much for your truth. God, I pray that you would teach us to be like the trees planted by streams of living water. Teach us to put down deep roots, to create rituals in our lives that fill us up and send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.